about how we taste. You know, how, how does tasting work? What, what's the process? Well, the pleasure of taste starts as the food we chew is mixed with saliva. And some of the food particles dissolve in the saliva, and this is increased if we have a drink of water or something like this, but the dissolved food particles, they reach our taste buds on our tongue. And in our taste buds, there are receptors that fire off signals to a certain part of our brain. And if the taste is good, it activates that pleasure centre and we swallow. However, if the taste is awful, <laughs> then we spit it out, or at least pull a face. And that's not just the same for us, it's the same for the animal kingdom as well. Birds have the fewest taste buds. The poor chicken is bottom of the animal kingdom. It only has 50 taste buds. Cows have two to three times the amount of taste buds that we have. Seems such a waste when they eat only grass. <laughs> but maybe there are flavours of grass that we can't even imagine. Now, catfish have the most taste buds, and many are found all over the, its skin. Imagine that. Yes, exactly. Some people call the catfish the swimming tongue. Disgusting. <laughs> However, imagine if you had taste buds all over your skin. Then you could just stick your finger in something and taste it straight away. No, no, let's just leave it at that. I think God did a good job. Flies have taste buds on their feet. Octopuses have, or octopi, have taste buds on their suckers, on their suction pads. Uh, and the cat family. The cats have taste buds, but they have no receptors for sweet. So when your cat jumps on the kitchen table and starts licking the icing off your cake without you noticing, they, they cannot taste the sweet taste. However, in my opinion, there are two animals in, that do not have taste buds based on their lack of chewing. chewing. Uh, one is our Labrador Tobin. I don't think he has taste buds. By the way, he wolfs down his food. And the other uh, teenage boys. <laughs> in my opinion, I don't know if they have taste buds or they haven't discovered them yet because they seem to hoover food. It's for you, you grandparents, you'll know when a teenage uh, uh, boys come to stay, you put a padlock on your fridge. It's great. Now, interesting facts and silly observations aside, the ability to taste and enjoy food is a wonderful gift from God, isn't it? I mean, just sit and imagine the last time you had a really lovely meal. Isn't that a gift? And that's emphasised for me when I've got a head cold. You know that, don't you? You're sitting down before, and you've got this lovely meal that's been prepared and you've got a head cold and you know that you're not going to enjoy it as much as you could because you, your sense of taste is right down. Now there's a parallel in the spiritual world. In the same way that we taste and see that food is wonderful, the Bible calls us to taste and see that God is wonderful. And that's what we're going to be exploring today. In Psalm, um, in Psalm 38, uh, we have this taste and see that the Lord is good. And we're going to spend about half our time looking at that. And then the other half of the time, we're going to look at the 1 Peter passage that says, Now that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Let's pray before we open up God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful gift of taste that we can enjoy our food and drink. But also thank you that that points to your goodness. Help us to understand this more and be closer to you as we hear your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I suppose today we're going to explore the tasting and seeing, starting with Psalm 34, uh, verse 8. And we'll see that that is in the present tense. It's an invitation now and today. And it is that, exactly that. It's an invitation. And then we'll move to 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 3, where it's in the past tense. It's like, now that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, what next? So that's what we're going to look at. So the first part is the invitation. Psalm 34, and it's a twofold invitation. The invitation to taste and see is first to those who are close to God, and then it's an invitation for those that are far away from God. Taste and see. So an invitation to those who are close. Now you may think that because you're a Christian, you're already close to God, that uh, we don't need an invitation to taste and see. Sort of, we've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. I mean, we're here at church. <laughs> So we've tasted and seen. Why do we have to keep doing that? Well, it's because being a Christian is not a one-time decision for Jesus and then a matter of attending church and keeping your nose clean. That's not what a Christian is. A Christian is about following Jesus. And not from a distance, but forever getting close, closer to Jesus. Being a Christian is about an ever-deepening relationship with Christ, a relationship that grows in warmth, closeness and trust. Yes, we may start by glimpsing our Heavenly Father from a distance, but then we come closer and closer as we experience God in a more personal, intimate and as a loving Father. It's a bit like in the family when Mum or Dad or whoever's doing the cooking calls out dinner's ready. I don't know about you, but in our household there was a bit of a rush. Some of that was to do with teenage boys making sure that they got some food before their brother ate it all. But there's that daily call of dinner's ready. And in a similar way that a hungry family needs to be fed every day, this taste and see that the Lord is good is an ongoing, everyday invitation for us to experience the goodness of God, to be nourished as we enjoy sweet fellowship with our Heavenly Father. But what do we taste? What food are we eating? What are the flavours we experience as we draw near to God? Well, if we go to Psalm 34 and pick up the verses just before um, verse, uh, verse 6, just before verse 8, I should say, where it says, taste and see. So let's look at those verses starting off with verse 4. This is what we have tasted and seen. I sought the Lord and he answered me. That's the first thing we taste. We seek the Lord and he answers us. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Second half of verse 4. He delivered me from my fears. God is delivering us from our fears. And that is us tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And we see verse 5. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. So when we come close to God, he frees us from guilt and shame. That's what it means to taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, verse 6. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. That's what it is to taste and see that the Lord is good. When we pray, when we speak to him, the God of the universe, he hears us. That's tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And finally, the second part of verse 6. He saved him, that's the poor man, out of all his troubles. That's what it is to taste and see that the Lord is good. And that he has and he will save us from all our troubles. So today, if you need to be found, 
if you need to be delivered from fear, if you need to know the freedom from guilt or shame, if you need to be heard by your heavenly Father, if you need to be saved from trouble, then the invitation here is to come now. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And this is why this is an invitation, first and foremost, to those who are close to God. But it's also an invitation for those that are far from God, an invitation for those people to draw near. And the, the wonderful thing, the interesting thing, the challenging thing is that because we have tasted and seen, God expects us to invite other people. We have tasted and seen that God is good. God has delivered me from my fears. God has delivered me from my shame. He's heard me when I called. He's, he's delivered me from my, my troubles. And because of that, I say, come and taste and see this. God saved me from my troubles. He can save you from yours. God has cleansed me from sin and I have no shame. He can do this for you. I talk to my Heavenly Father and He listens. Come, try it. And that is our challenge and our gift. Because we are developing a warm and personal, ongoing personal relationship with our Heavenly Father, then we are encouraged to call people to come and taste what we have tasted. And this is what the Bible calls witnessing or evangelism or evangelizing. Now, witnessing is like what happens in a legal court. Uh, someone has seen or heard or experienced something of a crime or a situation, so they are called to a court and they stand up and say, this is what I have seen, and they are being a good witness. Well, it's the same with us. When we witness, what we do is we stand up and say, this is what I have tasted. Come and taste it as well. Now, along these lines, one of the best definitions, if not the best definition for evangelism or witnessing that I've come across is this, or one that gets to the heart of the matter. It's a definition that replaces my reluctant duty or my fearful stammering with joyful sharing. Now, this definition that I'm about to tell you, once embedded in your heart, will see you confidently share your faith, even to the most unlikely people. So what's this definition? Evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to get food. You think about that. Evangelism, sharing our faith, witnessing, is one beggar telling another beggar where to get food. It's not me trying to convince someone else that they're a sinner. It's not me trying to scare someone with stories of the fire of hell. It's not me acting like an insurance salesman trying to sell the benefits of the Christian faith. Witnessing is one beggar telling another beggar where to get food. It's, I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Come and taste for yourself. And so, there we go. There we have Psalm 34, verse 8. In the present tense, an invitation for us who are near to come nearer and for those who are far away to draw close to the living God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Now let's switch gears and go to our passage of 1 Peter. Our passage of 1 Peter. And of course we've been, uh, for those visiting, we've been working our way through uh, the book of 1 Peter and we should finish this by Christmas. 
you know, it should be before that, but I'm having a lot of fun. There's so much in this, this little letter that Peter wrote. So we're finally into chapter two. And to give the context of the taste and see, let's read uh, the verses before it. So 1 Peter chapter two and the first three verses. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now verse 2. Verse 2 is an encouragement for us to crave pure spiritual milk and not to crave junk food. We are to crave pure spiritual milk. This is a reminder that Satan and the world and our own rebellious tendencies will try and pull us away from God's good diet into a diet of junk food and even toxic food. Satan pulls us away from the word, the food of God, the good food of God that we talked about before from in Psalm 34 and drags us by temptation and sin and distraction to the junk food that he has to offer. And verse 1 describes the junk food that we have to be careful of. Verse 1 lists five uh, items of rubbish food that we are to rid ourselves of. And we're going to go through each one of those uh, one at a time. And we see in chapter 1 that the first junk food that we are to rid ourselves of is malice. And as we go through these five, we're going to also look at how they connect to the Ten Commandments, the Big Ten. And we're going to see how dangerous these foods are for us and how and why we should rid ourselves. Rid ourselves of malice. Remember, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that if we hate our brother and sister, if we hold malice to others, then that is as good as murdering them. And it's the word of Jesus himself. And... Uh, Commandment number six out of the Big Ten says, you shall not murder. And Jesus said, if you hold malice or anger in your heart, that is good as murder. And this is junk food. It's not only junk food, it's a poison. A poison from Satan. And it's hard. Because that person we hate did such a nasty thing to us over a long period of time. And that person we hate, well, life seems to just fall into their lap. And there is no judgment and it feels so good to hold harbour malice in our heart. And though that's the natural tendency, we refuse to eat this tasty morsel of malice because we have tasted instead that God is good. So it's the first item of junk food that we are to rid ourselves. The second is that poison of deceit, of lying to one another. Uh, commandment number nine out of the Big Ten says we will not bear false witnesses against each other. And this is even more clearly stated in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 11. And this is God speaking. Leviticus 19. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. It's junk food. It's poison. And it's hard because therefore without thinking we are wired to get our own way. And so we stretch the truth to breaking point. We hide information that we know will put us in a bad light. We hide information so that we can advance our own agendas. And at times we blatantly lie. And sometimes we do this without even thinking. But often it's a plan. However, because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, we will not eat the tasty morsel 
of deceit. Now the third junk food that 1 Peter warns us against is the junk food of hypocrisy. Whenever we claim one thing about ourselves and behave in the opposite, we are hypocrites. So if we claim Jesus is our Lord and yet we put other things in front of him, if we put our family, if we put money, if we put our happiness or our careers in front of Jesus, then when we say he is our Lord, we're being hypocrites. And not only that, we are making these things we put in front of Jesus an idol. So if we make finance an idol, like we'll come to church and we'll tithe a little bit, but when push comes to shove, we will do anything to protect our bank balance or to make it grow, then we've made that an idol. And commandment number two of the Big Ten makes it clear we will have no other idols. And so if we confess Jesus as our Lord, we are being hypocrites unless we make that to be true. God is gracious. He knows that's hard. He will help us to make Jesus number one in our lives. And it's hard because we want others to think, uh, you know, we, um, we want others to, to think well of us no matter what. And so we do portray ourselves in the best possible light and we all have a tendency to be hypocrites. It's hard. However, because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, we refuse to eat the tasty morsel of hypocrisy. The next number four of the junk foods that Peter tells us that we must rid ourselves is envy. Of being fixated on what we don't have but someone else does. And another word for envy is coveting. And commandment number 10 out of the Big Ten says, Thou shalt not covet. You shall not envy, you shall not covet. Your neighbour's house, spouse, or donkey. Now, I can confess I've had problems with the first two, but not the last one. But if we think of the, a donkey as a mode of transport, we think as a flash as car, then what the Ten Commandments are saying, do not covet, do not envy your neighbour's house, spouse, or flash as car that's parked in the garage. And it's hard, because, because advertisers spend millions and millions of dollars every year to create with us, within us a sense of envy, of pining for what we do not have. However, because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, we refuse to eat the tasty morsel of envy. And then finally, in this list of junk food, of toxic foods, we are to rid ourselves of slander, slander of every kind, of spreading gossip, of imagining the worst of people and then telling other people about it, of twisting the behaviour of others and putting them in a bad light. And again, commandment number nine out of the Big Ten instructs us not to be a false witness about others, not to spread slander. And it's hard, especially when others slander us. It's hard, especially when others gossip about us, not to pay them back. However, because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, we refuse to take the tasty morsel of slander. You see, tasting the goodness of God motivates ourselves to get rid of all these unhealthy foods of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander. Because we have tasted and seen the good things of God, then we refuse to let these vices gain a foothold in our lives. Instead, 
We actively crave spiritual food, food that will build us up as we seek to love the Lord our God with all our heart and our neighbours as ourselves. And then we come to the final benefit of having taste and seeing what the Lord is good. So what have we looked at today? Well, in the present taste, there's an invitation, isn't there, for us to come closer and for those who don't know God, for us to invite them to come closer. That's the present tense benefit of tasting and seeing. But now that we have tasted and seen, what it does is it helps us get rid of junk food. It helps us to get rid of that stuff that would destroy our relation and sour uh, our relationship with each other and with God. And now we come to the final motivation. Since we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And this benefit is that having tasted the goodness of God, we will now not stray from God. We will not stray from the one who gave us his all. And unfortunately, we know folk from our past, or even just recently, who have been going for God and we thought they were going to be in the kingdom forever. Now, they've turned their back on the living God. But having tasted and seen, that's a good way, a wonderful way of us staying close to the living God. I want to give you two illustrations to finish. One from Hollywood and one from the Bible. So unlike many Hollywood marriages, Paul Newman's marriage is marked with longevity and a refusal to be unfaithful to his wife, Joan Woodward. And this was a reputation that followed him. What a good reputation, isn't it? And one time, an interviewer asked him about this, asked him about his reputation for faithfulness to his wife, and he said this, and, I, and uh, like I said before, you know, evangelism is beggars. Uh, one beggar telling another beggar where to get food. This is a quote that I'd love you to take away with. When asked why he was faithful to his wife, Paul Newman said, why go out for a hamburger when you have a steak meal at home? <laughs> have you heard that before? I heard it before, but until I got onto Google, I didn't realise that was Paul Newman. Isn't that wonderful? Why go out for a hamburger when you have a steak meal at home? And that helped keep Paul Newman faithful. And, you know, he was a handsome guy and he had all these beautiful actresses and all sorts of people. And yet he was faithful. The second thing he talks about this, and there's three things he talks about in different interviews, but the second thing he said was he'd never met a man who had more to lose than himself if his marriage broke up. It's interesting. I mean, this is a person who met presidents, famous actors, famous people, and he never met a man who had more to lose than him than if his marriage broke up. And thirdly, in another interview, he revealed that once, he, after a fight with his wife, he walked out. He walked out the back door and he walked round the front and he didn't get past the letterbox before he realised he had nowhere else to go. And so he went and knocked on the front door. It's as far as he got. And said sorry. Isn't that amazing? Do you know it's similar for us? Those three things. If we had taste, if we have tasted that the Lord is good, why would we leave a lovely steak meal, the one that God offers us, and go out and chase junk food? It's true, isn't it? I mean, why would we do that? Why would we trample the blood of Jesus under our feet by walking away from him? Firstly, remember also Paul Newman said that he never met a man who had more to lose than him. Well, how much us? Goodness me, we have our very souls to lose if we stray from Jesus. I mean, that's what's on the line. 
It's not just a religious preference. It's not just, well, I could do something better on a Sunday morning. <laughs> That's not what we're losing. Like Paul Newman, he never met a man who had more to lose than himself if his marriage fell over. It's the same for us in our Christian faith. <laughs> and finally, <laughs> Paul Newman couldn't get past the letterbox before he realised he had no one, nowhere else to go. And it's the same with us too. We would be going. We've tasted and seen that Jesus is the one. We've had a glimpse of the agony of the cross and the glory of the resurrection. Where else can you go? And this happened to the disciples in John chapter 6. In the Gospel of John chapter 6, um, Jesus gave probably what is the hardest teaching that he ever gave to all those following. And there were hundreds listening, including the disciples. And most, if not all of, the, all of his followers, left him because of his hard teaching. And so he then turned to his disciples, and we see this in John chapter 6, verse 67. And he said this to his disciples, You do not want to leave me too, do you? Are you going to leave me too? Peter and James and John, are you going to leave me like the rest of them? And for once, Peter got it 100% right. You know, I tend to find myself cheering for Peter because half the time he gets it wrong when he opens his mouth. But, but when he gets it right, he gets it 100% right. And this is what he said. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Lord, to whom Shall we go? It's a little bit like Paul Newman, really couldn't get past the letterbox, and he knocked on the door and said to his wife, where can I go? Well, more so for us. If we turn our back on Jesus, if we drift away, if we turn away, if we walk away from Jesus, where else can we go? Especially when we are tasting the banquet of the living God, and the only place we're going to is a greasy um, takeaway. <coughs> we have learned, like, like Peter and the disciples, we have learned that Jesus has the words of eternal life and that we believe that he is the Holy One of God. We have tasted and seen that not only is God good, but he is very, very good. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it just astounds me that you're Loving kindness continues to be directed to us. That in all our frailties, all our petty squabblings and distractions and all that, you still extend your love to us and we're so grateful. Lord, each one of us has tasted something of your goodness and we want to taste more. Help us to get rid of those junk foods, Lord, those poisons, poisonous morsels that Satan tempts us with. Help us to rid ourselves of those and to lean into your goodness and grace and give us the courage lord to share with other beggars where they can get food just as we as beggars have found and found goodness in you we pray this in jesus name amen